0: Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network.
1: Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Fractured Collarbones. When I first started my career, the party line for a fractured clavicle was if both ends of the collarbone were in the same state, it will heal fine and let them be. Then it seemed like there was this push to treat more clavicle fractures surgically, even in the pediatric and adolescent population. But was that really the right way to go? Was our previous thinking incorrect? Today on the podcast, I have two physicians who are part of the FAXT study. This is a multicenter group. It stands for Function After Adolescent Clavicle Trauma and Surgery. They will let us know what they found about their pediatric and adolescent clavicle fractures. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. The first of my two guests today is Dr. Benton Hayworth. Dr. Hayworth is an associate professor in orthopedic surgery at Harvard Medical School and attending orthopedic surgeon in the Division of Sports Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital, where he is also the associate director of the Sports Medicine Fellowship Program. He completed his undergraduate degree at Princeton, followed by medical school at Columbia University, and then his orthopedic surgery residency at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. He then completed two fellowships, the first in sports medicine, Massachusetts General Hospital, and the second in pediatric orthopedic surgery at Boston Children's. He is part of several multi-center research studies and has served as the chair of the research committee and director at large in the board of directors for PRISM and member of multiple committees for POSNA. My second guest is one of my partners, Dr. Jeffrey Neppel, who has been on the podcast before. Dr. Neppel is a pediatric sports medicine orthopedic surgeon who received his medical degree and completed his orthopedic residency at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. He then completed his fellowship in sports medicine at the Stedman Clinic, as well as a pediatric orthopedic fellowship at Washington University. He is a member of numerous medical societies and has clinical interest in pediatric knee disorders and research interest in young adult hip disorders and pediatric sports medicine in general. He also currently serves on the board of directors for PRISM. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks so much, Mark. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion today. I think it's an important topic for us to discuss, especially considering the research your group has been doing. I think a good place to start is just kind of letting our listeners know what exactly the FACTS group is and how it got started. And Ben, if you want to discuss that, that'd be awesome.
0: Yeah, the FACS group is a group of surgeon investigators with uh, great uh, research support from our primary site here at uh, Boston Children's with data managers, research coordinators at every site, and statisticians here at Children's uh, in Boston. And We have eight centers and basically 12 to 15 surgeons at different times. There have been a few people that have evolved on and off of the the group. I chose a, a group of collaborators and friends who I knew had an interest in this area who treated a lot of clavicle fractures. So it's some general pediatric orthopedists and some pediatric orthopedic sports medicine specialists just because it really affects all of us, such a common injury. And I tried to select a group of people that, that weren't necessarily holding a predisposed bias about the right type of treatment for these, but rather sort of a blend of approaches to this problem so that we could ultimately develop a cohort that underwent both types of treatment, operative and non-operative, and really the the completely displaced are the the more controversial ones. So the minimally displaced or partially displaced generally get treated non-operatively across the group when those completely displaced fractures in athletes and non-athletes Arise, our group, didn't have a preferred treatment per se, but rather everybody had a different approach for a different patient. So that was an ideal scenario to, to investigate in this cohort in adolescents.
1: And I know you guys have a huge cohort, which is awesome. And that really helps give a lot of information for what we're we're looking at here. I think we can get into some of the publications. And we're going to go through the five different publications you guys have put out so far I know there, there are others in the works, and we can talk about that towards the end. Perhaps we'll have each of you just summarize some of the key points. And let's start with the epidemiology article. It was published in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine in 2020. I think it's just a, a good place to start. We can talk a little bit about who was involved with this study since it was multi center, and then we'll talk about the findings of the study. So, Jeff?
2: Yeah, so I think the epidemiology was a nice place to start as this group got off the ground and enrolled a large group that we wanted to follow over time. I think Ben's comments there are important and how he kind of set this up that really sets facts up to really answer key questions in this highly controversial topic going forward with sort of a a broad geographic span that gives us good representation of different centers have different sports and maybe those fractures behave differently. So it's really a, a nice setup to answer these questions and Prospective cohort research is really powerful that you could have spent an entire career trying to enroll this many clavicles from one center. But by doing this in a multi center manner, in just the manner of, of a few years, you get powerful data sets that change practice now instead of 10 years from now, which is, is really, I think, the model in orthopedics. So the first paper, the epidemiology, was published in OJSM. This is the first cohort of 545 patients with clavicle fractures. These are 10 to 18 years old is how FACS has been set up. These were enrolled over like a three to four year period at eight centers. We have sort of have PIs at each of these centers, but the goal is to capture all of the fractures at your site, whether it's treated by a surgeon or another sports medicine colleague to really get all of the uh, representation. So, epidemiology I think is is very basic and very important to know that epidemiology from a multi-center study like this is about as good as it's ever going to get so these patients on average are 14.1 years of age again from 10 to 18 about 80 percent of these fractured occurred in in males which is not surprising sports was the mechanism in about two-thirds of these the most common sports being football and soccer but a broad representation of sports were seen 60 percent of these happened from from a direct blow to the shoulder, noting to cause the fracture. And then when we look at the real controversial fractures, as Ben mentioned, the displaced fractures, that made up 54% of the cohort. A large number of this cohort were those controversial ones. And then within this cohort, about a third were treated with surgery, while two-thirds treated without surgery. So this really set the stage For a large group that we can follow over time, which is a whole nother level of challenge that enrollment is one thing, but following young active patients is a whole nother challenge. But I think this will be the best understanding of the epidemiology of clavicle fractures that we have in the U.S. going forward.
1: And this, just to clarify, when the ones that went on to surgery, that that was surgeon choice, right, to decide to proceed to surgery. There wasn't any criteria you guys were using as far as who would get surgery and who wouldn't.
2: Yeah, I think this was highly controversial during this period. There aren't perfect guidelines for this. Often it's kind of a shared decision making with the families that some families in the identical situation opt for no surgery and some families opt for surgery. And I think within different providers, how you explain and counsel families might influence that decision as well. So this is a pretty good representation, I think, of an era where both approaches were being taken.
1: And just to put it in perspective, so this cohort, this start was 2013. Is that correct? So
2: yeah, 2013 10 years ago, you started. 2016. Yeah, exactly. It, uh, Ten years goes fast.
1: Yeah, and any of you who are familiar and had been practicing around that time, you'll know that that is really kind of the time where there was lots and lots of debate starting about the operative versus non operative and and a push towards that. So I'm not surprised you guys have the numbers that you do as far as surgery in this cohort.
2: Ben, tell us when this became a passion for you. You were practicing in this era and a lot of things changed in clavicle fractures. Tell us about when this sort of came to mind as a big research push? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh, I I think I was in
0: residency when the 2007 study came out in JVJS by Mike McKee and the COTS group, the Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society. And I would contend that That might be one of the most impactful studies in our field in sort of my training and career period in that it almost felt like clavicle fracture treatment changed overnight at that time. And so trauma surgeons, general orthopedic surgeons, sports medicine surgeons, people just began to operate on clavicles that previously they had treated non-operatively because of the definitive nature of the findings of that study. And a lot of randomized controlled trials followed that in different countries, often with sort of conflicting conclusions, similar data, but sometimes different interpretations of the data. But I think the pendulum had swung and was not going to swing back. And Then I went to a sports fellowship after residency where clavicle fractures were treated operatively. And then I arrived at Boston Children's Hospital for my second fellowship in general pediatric orthopedics. And there was real confusion about whether those findings were applicable to the patients we treated. But as a fellow, when I polled the five most senior surgeons about how many clavicle fractures they had treated operatively over their trauma call period, which collectively was 156 years of trauma call, only seven clavicle fractures we can recount had ever been treated operatively, most of them open. And so all of a sudden, one of the young surgeons who became my partner when I joined the group the next year, during his board's collection period of six months, he treated seven operatively. So over the same period. So something was needed to be understood about that discrepancy and so that's when I really wanted to explore whether the adult findings which were controversial unto themselves were possibly applicable to this younger age group who presumably healed better and more reliably but at the same time were more active so perhaps the findings were even more applicable to them they really needed that better function so that's why our focus was looking at complications but also critically looking at function of the shoulder after healing of the fracture whether operatively or non-operatively and then of course how common were the two key poor results, i.e. non-union failing to heal, and then symptomatic malunion, which is the collarbone healing in a sort of malpositioned way or a non-anatomic way, but then leading to symptoms, which many of them we knew healed, but we didn't know how frequent it was that that affected shoulder function adversely. So that was the inspiration of putting together a group and making sure there was geographic diversity across the country in terms of multiple centers, and as diverse populations as we could capture at these major tertiary care referral centers.
1: It's all good stuff. And it I, I love that background. For me, it really, you know, again, it highlights just that curiosity. And obviously, <laughs> I love the example of what you talked about as far as the, the long standing history of all this trauma experience, and, and very few had been operated on and obviously opens that makes sense. And then then this the change. It's interesting because that's kind of just leading off into this podcast So just kind of, that was my training in 2002 to 2004 for my fellowship was just, just leave them be in beads and and they'll do fine and we don't have to worry about them. And that was kind of the, the party line, like I mentioned. And so I, this, this stuff is, like I said, I'm, I'm eating your research up because I just, I love this stuff. But you had a study prior to the epidemiology study that I think was kind of the setup here. You know, you, there was several follow-up analyses, and we'll talk about those those additional publications in just a minute. But the the first one that you guys published was the reliability of radiographic assessments. You know, obviously, there was, there was a need to make sure that you had good intra- and inter reliability. I'll let uh, Ben comment on this to start off with, and Jeff, feel free to comment on this. This was published in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma in 2017. Mm. And just let us know what you found about the reliability of the measurements of shortening. And we will be sure to have all links to all these articles in our show notes that any of our listeners can reference to.
0: This was sort of a simple, almost methodological study to ensure that our approach to measuring shortening of the collarbone fractures, which is a key metric that had been used in the in the previous sort of five to 10 years of these emerging clavicle fracture non-op versus operative studies could be replicated amongst our group. So for us to use these critical metrics, we had to make sure we agreed. And so we found good reliability across the group when the multiple investigators, both with shortening and another metric of superior displacement. With shortening, we characterized two different Sort of types of shortening or two different metrics for shortening. One was where you took the end of the bone and measured to the other end of the bone because often these completely displaced fractures will bayonet and shorten. But it's very rarely a straight transverse fracture. Instead, it's usually kind of oblique or short oblique or even long oblique. And therefore, we found. People were probably over-measuring the shortening when we had an additional metrics of trying to measure the cortex to the corresponding cortex on the appropriate side, that there was less of a degree of shortening. So even though most of the studies previously had measured end-to-end shortening, that's that sort of greater displacement measurement we wanted to measure what we thought was more of a true shortening measurement. And so we found we had agreement in both of those techniques, but that reliably or consistently, the end-to-end shortening was greater than the cortex-to-corresponding cortex measurement. So we've tried to report on both of those in most of our studies just to keep people thinking about the idea that one may be a more appropriate way to, to measure. And so frequently, people have used this historic metric of 20 millimeters or two centimeters. And it never made quite sense to me to set such a, somewhat of an arbitrary threshold and use that to decide if someone needed surgery. So someone measuring 17 millimeters of shortening got to heal with a sling, and then somebody with 22 millimeters of shortening had to have a plate and screws. So we've continued to kind of look at that critically, and, and there's more studies to come specifically on those in terms of the clinical
2: or functional results related to those. And I think at that time, Ben, some people would argue you can't measure cortex to cortex reliably, even though it's probably more accurate. So this was a nice sort of demonstration that kind of true displacement is probably what we should be talking about in clavicle fractures rather than an estimate that overestimates the true degree of displacement. Yeah, absolutely.
1: We'll be right back after this quick break.
0: Thought about a career in voiceover?
1: Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at PediatricSportsMedicinePodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, Time flies, but it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar. With the Editor Core, editorcore.com. That's editorcore.com. And now back to the podcast. And those two studies were great things that we we talked about, just setting a foundation for the subsequent studies and and more outcomes. And like I said, we'll we'll talk about some of the things that you guys have in the works at the very end. But I think it gave us some clarity about, you know, obviously what to do with these clavicle fractures, how to approach them. And then you've published three studies since those that tackled bony remodeling, what changes occurred in displacement angulation and shortening in the early phase of healing for the completely displaced clavicle fractures. And then I had a two-year functional outcome study for those treated operatively versus non-operatively. And like I mentioned, we'll, we'll be sure to have all those studies linked in our show notes so anybody can reference those. But we'll kind of go and order these publications and that we'll have a start with the study published in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery in 2021, looking at the changes in displacement, angulation, shortening in the early phases of healing of the completely displaced clavicle fractures. And I'll have Jeff walk us through that.
2: Sure. I think at this point, we've enrolled a lot of clavicles into facts and, and the results are kind of coming down the road. And I, know, I think many of us know that many of these fractures do just fine without surgery. And then the question remains, why is that? So that's what a couple of these other studies have kind of tackled. Like, why do the adolescent clavicle fractures seem to do pretty well, even though they look pretty bad when they come into clinic? So the first publication on that that we looked at was in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery, looking at the concept of sort of where does the fracture sit when we see it initially in those first two weeks in clinic? And then where does it look like when we're almost kind of in the healed stage? So in that kind of 6 to 20 week window i think the mean was around 10 weeks in adults fractures tend to get worse and we don't know if that was true in kids so when we looked at this we actually saw in that by the time that healing phase is happening these fractures often look significantly better so the settling phenomena in the adolescent is a favorable thing not a negative thing and it's somewhat somewhat variable and depending on how you look at the numbers but on average these fractures tend to get a little bit better. Some of them get way better. Some of that may be getting rid of the spasms and things that are displacing the x-ray when you first see that kid in clinic. So giving these a little bit of time in some situations may allow us to see a better representation of what that fracture is going to look like and what that shoulder is going to look like in the healed state. So a lot of numbers kind of in the paper, but a good portion of these, at least 25%, significantly improved by a substantial margin, and probably over half or three quarters improve at least by some margin. So, important to not think that what it looks like at, at the time of the presentation. Is going to be exactly what it looks like and the healed state. And that's true of both the shortening and the superior displacement. Both of those are findings that tend to, in most individuals, get at least a little better, if not substantially better.
0: I think that's a great summary, Jeff. And I think we didn't really have the means to understand exactly. know why that improvement occurred and why that might be different than the lack of improvement that had been reported in adult studies. But one can theorize that often the injury films are when an adolescent is at their most uncomfortable and they're trying to kind of protect or splint that shoulder. And then what's different about the adolescent clavicle is it's got a much thicker periosteum around it. And most of that periosteum is still intact despite the fracture, which is maybe a little different than a bad fracture in an adult. And so with the relaxation of the shoulder muscle and shoulder girdle muscles in the early weeks after the fracture, the periosteum sort of does its thing and probably helps to restore the alignment in multiple planes in the older age group that might not happen. So that's what we felt. And and it's one of the reasons we think that healing is so reliable as well is because there's not just appositional cortical healing, but really the subperiosteal healing, a big bed of callus to form and, and help bridging and prevent those non-unions that are reported a 15% in adults.
1: I think that's probably the most common question I get in the office early on from families is from moms in particular is 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 my kid's shoulder always going to sit lower than the other one and, and again you, we know that that's just they're splinting it hurts to shrug their shoulder up and we got to obviously explain it in that terms but that's I think that's the biggest thing that I get asked always regardless of whether what the x-rays look like is is my kid's shoulder never going to sit up at a normal height again and and we reassure them that yes it will I'm sure I'm, I'm guessing you get that question Jeff
2: Yeah, I think it's always a little hard, and that's where sometimes giving it a week or two, the kid feels better. They're not splinting as much. You can sometimes see these x-rays getting better already to not jump into surgery. You don't necessarily gain that much by rushing right in. I think sometimes we're a little biased. These kids are going to hurt the first couple weeks regardless. And if you don't do surgery, by the time you're a couple weeks down the road, they're getting better. And if you do surgery, by the time you're a couple weeks down the road, they're getting better. So I think we spend a lot of time these days talking families out of surgery because they go to the ER, they're told surgery, they go to other people, they're told surgery, that a natural inclination to fix these, that the parents love the surgery. But it takes a really kind of slowed down discussion to tell them maybe why we don't always need to do surgery.
1: And that's a great segue into the next study. And we can discuss that as far as what was published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2022. This was the two-year functional outcome of operative versus non-operative treatment for the completely displaced fractures. And I'll let Ben walk us through that study.
0: I think this was our first big clinical paper making use of the functional outcomes that we really worked hard to collect in a highly mobile, uh, somewhat uh, elusive population as adolescents move along to college and and or return to their busy lives once they're healed, which usually happened pretty quickly. This was uh, 416 adolescents. So this was all the completely displaced fractures. We basically filtered out all of those that probably wouldn't undergo surgery by most, but these were ones that might just undergo surgery by most adult trauma surgeons if they were in an older population and potentially undergo surgery even in the adolescent population, whether that was being treated by adult surgeons or pediatric orthopedic caregivers. So over two-thirds had their two-year follow-up and all had been followed to the phase of healing. We did find when we looked at the two cohorts, because we didn't dictate the treatments by the study methods, that there were some subtle differences between the operative and the non operative patients. The operative patients were slightly older, and there were more comminuted fractures amongst the operative groups, and they had greater fracture shortening, less than five millimeters difference, but enough that it was statistically significantly different. So, an important mechanism. In the design of the study was utilizing statistical techniques to make sure that we were comparing apples to apples. So while we have an overall analysis of the two cohorts, the key analyses we felt were ones that had undergone either regression analysis to really compare the same types of patients and a matching kind of subset so that we were comparing sort of precisely matched subsets of patients. And so both in the overall cohort and in the matched and adjusted cohorts, we found that there was no difference in the two-year PROs between the two groups. But what we did find was a little concerning: was that over ten percent of the operative group had undergone subsequent surgery at the two-year mark, compared to you know one point four percent in the non-operative group. And then what we deemed clinically significant complications i.e. excluding the sensory changes that are common about the scar and the chest wall and the clavicle region. We didn't feel like that really affected function much, so we excluded those. But even after eliminating those, the complication rate was over 20% in the operative group compared to 5%. And so that was the concerning finding is, you know, we never really thought it was too big a deal. Most of our operative patients did well when we did surgery for these, but we we kind of were concerned that perhaps we were actually doing harm to be doing surgeries where they did equally well with non-operative treatment from a functional standpoint. And then when we looked at the key complications of non-union, delayed union, and symptomatic malunion and then finally refracture overall these rates were remarkably low so really different than the adult studies that had come out non-union was under one percent delayed union under two percent symptomatic malunion under one percent and refracture under three percent so no big differences in those rates between those groups but also not enough numbers to really be concerned about, even if you kind of rode the storm out with non operative treatment with bad looking fractures.
1: It's good stuff. And, you know, finally, the most recent study that was published this year, also in AJSM, looked at bone remodeling of the completely displaced clavicle fractures. I'll let Jeff talk us through that one.
2: Yeah. So, this is, I think, uh, a, a very cool paper that really helps us clinically to help families understand why we can leave these alone. So, Big props to Andy Penick in San Diego, who's one of our colleagues and and did a lot on sort of getting this going. This is a great example of something maybe we didn't set up to answer, but along the way, figured out we probably could answer as well. So in this study, we looked at these fax patients that are now years down the road, and most are doing well, as we just heard. And let's look back and see whoever had a chest X-ray or whoever had another shoulder x-ray or something where we can see their clavicles to see what these fractures look like years down the road. Calling these patients back and bringing them in for x-rays, good luck. You're never going to get them back to make that happen. So sort of using data that's there, x-rays that are there across all of our institutions. We look back at all of our patients who end up having these. So this is a group of about 100 patients, and they're Mean of 3.4 years down the road, some of them even longer. And the changes were then classified based on the amount of remodeling as minimal, moderate, or near complete. And the findings show that a remarkable amount of remodeling occurs. And I think many of us were even surprised by the x rays we see and the amount of change that is very profound in an individual under 14 and happens a lot even in the individual above 14 maybe 20% of them don't remodel much at all in that group but the vast majority do and one of my favorite outcomes of this study is every patient's x-rays as part of an appendix so very few research publications get printed off and stored in, in clinic. This Everybody's listening to this should print this off and put it in your clinic because this is a wonderful tool to show a 15-year-old female an x-ray of a similar fracture and what it looked like five years later, which really sets the stage for better understanding by the patients as they sort of work to make decisions about how to treat these fractures. So I'd encourage everyone to look at the appendix, Mark, if you can. In addition to the article, that'd be a great one to put on the link to grab because I think it's a very useful tool for understanding these fractures and what to expect down the road. Yeah, we'll be sure to do that. No question about that.
1: Well, I'd like to just kind of talk a little bit before we kind of close out here tonight, just kind of give us an idea of what should we be expecting with the FACTS group down the road. I know that there's a lot of data in this cohort, and what else are you guys looking at that we may expect to see in some publications down the road?
0: Some of this data has been able to be presented, and so is sort of in the pipeline for publication, and others are just getting started. But One of our goals after the big study was trying to make sure that we didn't lose sight that there may be Smaller subpopulations within those larger overall cohorts of operative versus non operative that might actually benefit from surgery because of certain factors. So, these substratified analyses, for example, we wanted to look specifically just at the older adolescents with more severe fractures who played sports. So, Dave Spence led us in that exercise, and that's in works uh, having been submitted recently for publication. Colleen Sabatini from UCSF led us in looking specifically at the Z-type fractures, which is what we labeled the comminuted fractures that had an intercalary fragment or comminuted fragment that sort of was more upright that sometimes kind of looks a little worse than even a, a normally bayoneted fracture. In addition, we're looking at baseball players and uh, seeing if they might benefit from surgery, plate and screws to restore anatomy. And then females, specifically a small subset, you know, it's only 20% of our cohort and an even smaller subset underwent surgery amongst the females. But how did they fare two to five years following their fracture? And how did they feel about their hardware? Were there any sort of sex-specific findings that might be relevant specifically for females? And then we're also looking specifically at subsets based on shortening to make sure that we're not missing the severely shortened, maybe doing much better with surgery compared with the mildly shortened and things like that. But yeah, a lot of exciting data still to mine. And I just want to acknowledge, you know, not just Jeff and our group at WashU, but all of the collaborators in the FACTS group, because this has really been a, a labor of love for for all of us and an incredibly collaborative effort. We've tried to sort of share the opportunities that the, this big data set has given for us to both analyze and present and and potentially publish to inform you know different populations of surgeons because while the pediatric orthopedic community is sort of common amongst our group we really want important outreach not just to adult surgeons who care for adolescents but also the Primary care sports medicine specialists, medical sports medicine specialists that see these every week, our ER colleagues that you know see them at the at the front lines, basically, you know, when the f- fracture first happens, and sometimes. The misunderstanding of what's best, you know, starts right there. So a lot of patients come in having been seen in the ER, saying, "Who's going to be my surgeon?" Because they've been told that that's one of the ones that they fix these days. But the reality is, we we haven't had the the knowledge to know who should be fixed. And so maybe some of these studies that we're doing in ongoing efforts will show us that certain select subpopulations do benefit from surgery more than the sort of washed out group that our initial studies. have shown. So I look forward to digging deeper and sharing that information and continuing to talk about it.
2: And I think FACS is a great example of why we do prospective high level of evidence research, that it's really changed treatment. And if you look at some of the retrospective literature going into FACS would say a 20% rate of symptomatic malunion. And you I mean it's off by a scale of 10, which really shows you kind of in orthopedics and in sports medicine, why prospective research is really important to minimize bias because some things about retrospective studies can kind of creep in and you have to take certain studies with a grain of salt until we have high level of evidence to guide it that you've seen the pendulum swing one way and now it seems to be swinging back to a better spot and hopefully it ends up in a good spot that optimizes the outcome for as many patients as possible.
1: And we'd like to end our podcast with something we call the Pearl of the Podcast. It's our time for our guests to give their parting comment or a take-home point. You know, I think considering this research, I think maybe it would be helpful just to think about maybe a way that it's changed your guys' practice individually. And then what would you just in general recommend for those treating clavicle fractures in adolescence? And we'll start with Ben.
0: Yeah, I think Jeff brought up some good points about the remodeling study. You know, the takeaway that I have had from this experience is that that x-ray can look pretty scary. And we sort of understand why the pendulum swung so hard and fast. And some of the adult research that suggested RAF made more sense happened to kind of correspond with the change in practice patterns where x-ray viewers were going into the exam rooms and so families and parents of these adolescents looking over your shoulder at a really sometimes troubling looking x-ray we're used to things kind of being anatomic and fit together perfectly and so it was a real leap of faith, actually, some of the more severe fractures convincing families that they should give it time and see if it might heal and allow their kids to return to normal function. So I I can't tell you that I didn't toss and turn a few nights having kind of talked some families out of surgery with bad looking fractures, but what I learned is it, it was remarkable how few of those kids went on to have any problems, which is really what our research has borne out. And Some of the most grateful families were the ones with the worst looking fractures that so three months later their kids were getting back in action. They didn't have scars, they didn't have dysfunction, and they felt like they had saved their kid the risks of anesthesia. So. I would say you know my pearl is do your best to go by the evidence rather than the appearance of the x-ray and kind of maybe a parallel is all these other fractures in kids we've always thought of the importance of remodeling and used metrics and belief that you know somebody's at this young age group is going to heal we don't treat femur fractures the same between kids or adolescents and adults or tibia fractures or almost any fracture and somehow You know, a decade ago, we were starting to treat clavicle fractures just like we did in adults because that was where the evidence emerged from originally. But it's nice to have some literature to back up what those five senior surgeons who I originally polled had uh, said to me at the time. I don't understand why things are changing because these all do really well uh, without surgery. So that's my pearl is don't think too hard about the x-ray and think about how well these kids can do with the miracle of young bone and the benefit of young biology.
1: How about you, Jeff?
2: Yeah, I think I'd echo those comments. Pioneers in orthopedics called the clavicle the invincible bone for a reason. And that's definitely true in, in our younger patients who we see have such great healing and remodeling potential. I think it's important for providers seeing these fractures to be comfortable with surgery, but also be comfortable without surgery. I think sometimes some surgeons are comfortable putting the bones back together and they're not as comfortable watching that displaced clavicle fracture heal. And I think Vax has now armed clinicians with better evidence to help assist in that discussion with families. And I think it's often a A lengthy discussion compared to just signing someone up for surgery. But now I think we have better tools than we've had probably ever to better inform that decision for us, but also better inform that for the patients and families. And I think that's really how we're going to best treat these patients in the future is making sure both parties are well informed and comfortable with the decisions and the progress going forward.
1: Yeah, and I, I can't thank you guys enough for having this group together and doing this, you know, just as a personal kind of last little comment of my own. And Jeff's been involved with a couple of these cases where I've had a couple kids recently in the last probably six months or so with with the Z-type fracture that started to give that little wringing my hands a little bit and like oh gosh is this not going to be one of those because this is the one that everybody's maybe paranoid about over the course of the last decade or so and running it by both Jeff and then one of my adult colleagues as well and Jeff's like no we got the evidence that shows that these actually do fine don't worry about it and then my adult said yeah maybe you want to lean towards looking at it so I posed it to the families and the families decided to go towards the non-operative approach and I've been amazed and surprised not, not I, I shouldn't say necessarily amazed and surprised but I've been pleasantly and the families have been as well about the outcomes for each of them and and how they look and how the x-rays turned out so again i think it's just again one of these things that i think that's the thing i think we all love about pediatrics is the amazing ability for bones to to do incredible things that you look at it for initially and you're like no that's not going to look good and then amazingly they (laughs) six months later they look fantastic so but I'd really like to thank my two guests, Dr. Hayworth and Dr. Neppel for their time and expertise and being part of this important multicenter study to give us a better evidence based guidance on how to manage and what to expect following clavicle fractures in adolescence. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at pedsportspod. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Dr. Mark Hallsdard, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halsted and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.